you're, you're a cashier, you know, you're ringing up dozens of customers every hour. You got to make eye contact, you got to smile, and then you better not have an inaccurate till. They make you doubt yourself, you know, they, 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 they force us to think of striking workers as an inconvenience to the rest of us. Today, it's the shipping and cannery workers. Tomorrow, it'll be everybody else that wants a decent wage increase to maintain their standard of living. I'm telling you right now, when you're in the same room as the president of the United States, it doesn't matter what party that person is from, it is impressively, it just overwhelms you. Our choice is peace, clean air and water, pro-worker economic policies, and leadership we can believe in. This whole midwifery thing came at me from a lot of different angles. I mean, it's literally and figuratively a calling. When they call in, you gotta be ready to go. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. Leading off this week's show, we've got a collaboration between two figures who will be familiar to regular listeners of this show. Errol Schweitzer of the Checkout Podcast and Maximilian Alvarez, who hosts the Working People podcast. In recent months, Errol has been among the fiercest critics of the proposed merger between grocery giants Kroger and Albertsons. This past week, Errol joined Max on the Working People podcast to talk about his own unique career path, the implications of growing monopolization within the grocery sector, and the pressures faced by retail workers in both the front and back of the shop. Next, two strike updates, one from New Jersey, the second from Northern Victoria. In New Brunswick, three unions representing 9,000 educators, clinicians, and librarians walked out last week at Rutgers University in an unprecedented contract action. The We Rise Fighting podcast reviews the latest news and offers their take on what's going on. We then turn to the Stick Together podcast from Australia, where we'll hear about the Shepparton cannery workers and their fight for fair pay. Tony Mavromatis, Victorian State Secretary for the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, explains the broad implications of the strike to Annie McLaughlin. What is the legislative conference and why should we care? We'll find out on the PFFA podcast. Gene Lance is concerned successive crises in both the U.S. and overseas have, the host of Workers Beat contends, left us at a historical fork in the road, where both democracy and the larger international order face continued tumultuous time. Gene warns that we are just one crisis away from drastic change. Finally, despite a long tradition of midwifery in the black community, which predates the founding of the United States, less than 2% of midwives today are black. The Rework podcast brings us the story of Kim Durden, who found her calling in reclaiming midwifery and birth work. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. All right. Well, welcome everyone to another special bonus episode of Working People, 
a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. We've got my man Errol Schweitzer on the call today. I've been catching more of his stuff of late and have been thinking about it a lot and really wanting to get him on to talk about the the Kroger-Albertson's merger specifically and, you know, about what it means and what it says about the state uh, for, of, you know, working people um, who depend on and labor within uh, the food industry as such. You know, we, we've covered uh, a number of um, kind of crucial labor struggles that have taken place in or around kind of the, the grocery sector. But I, I wanted to just kind of take a second and, and just sort of ask, like, um, from your perspective, like, I guess, like what your sort of read is on the state of the labor movement within the grocery sector, or just like, you know, your observations reporting on this, working on this, like, what do you think, like, you know, workers in this industry are going through that maybe even those of us in the labor, on the labor beat, like maybe don't talk about as much as we should? If you want to talk about the grocery industry, um, first, you know, and I'll get to, you know, how this impacts, you know, workers. If you want to talk about the grocery industry, you need to talk about Walmart. Walmart is the center of gravity. And, you know, on bad days, I like to call them the all-consuming void. At some point within the grocery industry, you are competing with Walmart or indirectly competing with them because you're competing instead with like a Kroger who's competing with Walmart or with a Wegmans or an HEB, these bigger chains. Well, what does that mean to folks who work in the food industry? I mean, Walmart has among the lowest, you know, job rating satisfaction retention rates. They're always doing layoffs. Like every six months, if you read, and like me, you read the, the business press. I am obsessed with reading the, the food industry press. I read three or four newsletters a day. Always announcements of layoffs and restructuring because they're always trying to figure out how to maximize their relatively low margins. You know, they run off of like a 22, 23% margin, um, very tight. Um, but they're also highly profitable and really just a cash you know, machine and ATM for the Walton family, frankly. Um, but what that means is that they are usually among the lowest paid um, you know, employees. They've done some raises, but relative to cost of living, standard of living, um, nowhere coming close to what you could call a, uh, a living wage uh, or a livable wage, as some of the studies have called it. So when I talk about these reports saying, you know, one chain, Kroger, as there was a study that, you know, up to 75% of their employees face food insecurity, 14% face homelessness. Kroger doesn't pay any better than any other chain, barely better than, than Walmart. What that means is probably a majority of grocery clerks, folks who work in stores, are facing deep economic hardship. And this is a huge, huge sector. It's a really low paid, high turnover, very difficult work. It's you're, you're always busy. You know, if you're a stock clerk, you come in and you got to throw a load. You know, that load hits the dock. You're taking it off the pallets. You're, you know, you're cutting through the shrink wrap. You're stacking the boxes onto U-boats or other carts. You're wheeling that out and, you know, making stacks based on where the product goes in the aisles. Then you're, you know, open up, cutting up the boxes, you know, throwing stuff on the shelf, um, you know, first in, uh, you know, last out, um, you know, first in, first out, um, making sure stuff is rotated. Um, and that it's fronted and looks nice, um, that you're hanging shelf tags, you're, you're touching up and rebuilding end caps. 
um, you're probably touching 50 or 60 cases of food an hour. And if you're really sharp and if you're really good, you're talking 75 to 100, particularly if you're in an overnight shift when there's no customers around. Um, or if you're, you're a cashier, you know, you're ringing up dozens of customers every hour. You got to make eye contact. You got to smile. And then you better not have an inaccurate till. And it used to be that if you had an inaccurate till, you were responsible for that, for that you got written up. But now most retailers, they rotate cashiers in and out of cash registers. So if there's an inaccurate till, it's group punishment. <laughs> it's like everybody who had worked on that till on that cash register uh, is getting some sort of disciplinary procedure. And in some cases, the whole shift will get written up. And that's how a lot of retailers function now. It's deeply draconian. You know, it's, I think Noam Chomsky refers to, you know, private corporations as, you know, islands of tyranny. And if you're in the grocery sector, particularly if you're, you know, at will, uh, non-union, you have very little say in how these policies are implemented at work. You are expendable. I mean, you know, Henry Ford, this is what I like to say, is Henry Ford was a Nazi, but he at least had figured out, and I say this as a Jew, he had at least had figured out that he had to pay his employees enough for them to afford his cars. The grocery industry doesn't even do us that well for them, you know, for a lot of folks who work in the industry. Dude, that's fucked up. That's fucked up in a, like in a way that's like, what is actually worse than that in the world? Being able to not afford food yet working, you know, 30 or 40 hours a week touching food all day and helping folks buy food. of We Rise Fighting Labor podcast. We bring you today's labor news, history, and analysis from the U.S. and around the world. This is a podcast you listen to with your fellow workers organizing on the shop floor. This is a podcast you listen to before walking into your union meeting. As always, I am Rico Rutia here with my co-host, Brian Pfeiffer. So now I'm going to talk, uh, we're going to go back to uh, one of the major things that are happening in this country, as we mentioned before. Another struggle at Rutgers and academic workers on the move from one end of the country to the other. And Rick's going to give us an update on the Rutgers union struggle. Excited to read this news. This is coming from New Jersey SpotlightNews.org. The headline read, reads, Rutgers union members disrupt meeting, strike threat remains. Okay, now members of Rutgers University unions angry over stalled contract talks burst through a door Wednesday and disrupted, disrupted a meeting where Michael Gower, the university's chief financial officer, was to discuss the university's budget. The protest quickly shut that down. University officials exited, leaving frustrated union members no closer to a resolution. Earlier this month, or last month, I should say, uh, March, uh, three unions representing some 9,000 educators and medical workers voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike after negotiations dragged on for months. Amy Hyder, an adjunct professor, voted for the strike authorization. She, she is quoted as saying, quote, we teach the same courses as full-time non-tenure track faculty. We get paid less than half of what they get paid. So we're asking for equal pay for equal work, unquote. And there is another quote. Uh, All we hear is that there is no money and we firmly disagree 
That's from Christine O'Connell, who heads the, admin, the administrators union. They are public employees, and if <clears throat> the unions do strike, Rutgers president Jonathan Holloway has indicated he could ask for an injunction ordering the workers back on the job. But an open letter from more than 75 self-described, quote, labor, social justice, and black freedom struggle scholars, unquote, across the U.S., asked Holloway to avoid a legal battle and, quote, work with the campus unions towards a just and fair contract, unquote. Another article in the Gothamist states that the academic work stoppage would virtually shut down New Jersey's flagship public university across all its campuses, including New Brunswick, Newark, and Camden, including uh, affecting more than 67,000 students. Now, take a second to listen to that, and let's crunch those numbers here for a second, because really, listen to that. 67,000 students. Now, I had mentioned previously that these are about 9,000 workers going on strike. So as we've done here in this podcast before, and as we will continue to do, we are going to highlight numbers like that because the capitalist media always comes out with numbers like that. They always crunch the numbers as how the strike will affect the economy, how the strike will affect the company, how the strike will affect profits, how the strike will affect the community, stuff like that. And they make you doubt yourself. You know, they, 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 they force us to think of striking workers as an inconvenience to the rest of us. But really, when we take those numbers and we crunch them and we listen to that, 9,000 graduate workers affecting 67,000 students, that's power. That's power. That's not an inconvenience. That's power. And as long as this podcast exists, we're going to keep highlighting that article after article, strike after strike, struggle after struggle. So hats off to Rutgers, uh, graduate workers. Thank you for bringing that inspiration and keeping Rutgers on the map like that. This would be the first strike, uh, strike of its nature at Rutgers, and we will continue to keep you informed as to what's going on with that. So thank you, everyone. Solidarity to all. Thank you for listening in. Have a good night, everyone. You're listening to Stick Together, worker stories and union news, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. You're with Annie on Stick Together, union news, worker stories and social justice issues on your community radio network. The workers at the Vizzy Cannery in Shepparton in country Victoria were offered 8.7% wage increase over four years in their latest EBA negotiations, which was actually a pay cut with the rate of inflation running as high as it is. Considering Vizzy registered $7 billion in revenue, that was $7 billion in revenue in the last 12 months, workers felt they needed to stand their ground to get a better deal. I spoke to Tony Mavromatis, Victorian State Secretary of the AMWU, the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union, who has been party to the negotiations to find out about the dispute. Let's get down to the Vizzy issue. Um, now, Shepparton is a, a country town. It's got a limited amount of employers. And so this is obviously a very serious issue for people to go on strike. And it's been going on since January, hasn't it? Um, they've been taking industrial action now for eight and going into their ninth week. Yeah. 
so how how are the how are the people feeling? What's going on? Well, Annie, um, you know, we're talking about forty-five workers that um, work at the cannery in Shepparton. The cannery supplies cans for the food industry, i.e., you know, Nestle's, Campbell Soups, SPC. Um, that's the food that ends up in our supermarkets for people to buy. Um, um, for the last six years, um, these workers have only been receiving, you know, um, wage increases of around about 2% a year. And the company, you know, which is busy, um, have been, you know, arguing CPI is low, therefore we're just going to give you 2% per year. Um, these workers I'm talking about, Annie, are only on, some of them are on about $27, $28 an hour. We're not talking about really high-paid high-paid high people. We're still, we're still um, trying to reach an agreement. We want to reach an agreement for these workers out there, but it's got to be a fair agreement. At the moment, the company's um, making applications to the commission to remove the protected industrial action that these workers are taking. Now, I know that uh, there's been rolling strikes. So uh, it started off being, you know, like two days, then three days, then four days, uh, because it's actually really hard for these workers to actually make ends meet, isn't it? So this is really hard campaigning. Well, as you said before, Annie, we're, we're talking about a community in Shepparton where there isn't that many jobs around Shepparton. Um, they aren't high-paid wages. Um, and when you're on strike and, and, and not having any income, it's hard. Um, and, 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 and strategically, strategically, the stoppages are designed to keep some money in their pockets to be able to pay the bills and put food on the table. Um, and and have an effect um, um, to get the company to negotiate properly. We've got a lot of donations coming in from around Victoria, some from around Australia, as I mentioned, and and workers are understanding that you know this struggle needs to be fought and it needs to be won because you know the struggle for the shepherd and cannery workers is also the struggle for the rest of the country and the state. And we all need to be supporting each other um, to make sure we can, you know, win these win these disputes. Remember, at the end of the day, their struggles, everybody's struggle, and and everybody's time will come where they're going to have to fight for the cost of living, because governments aren't doing enough. The banks are definitely making it harder. The cost of living's up there, and and today it's the shipping and cannery workers. Tomorrow it'll be everybody else that wants a decent wage increase to maintain their standard of living. So if people can just make small donations, that'd be great. We'll really appreciate it. And, and, and of course, the shepherd and cannery workers would appreciate their donations to help them through the struggle. So I'll supply that information to you, Annie, and if you can advertise that, we'd really appreciate on behalf of those shepherd and cannery workers. No worries about that. In fact, I put some money in myself already. Thank you, Annie, and I'll pass that message to the workers. Stick, stick together. together. Yeah. Stick together. Yeah. Stick together. 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 
Um, sitting here today, this afternoon, after the general membership meeting with uh, President Isaac McLennan. Oh, I should say I'm your host, Kyle McLowry, uh, Vice President uh, Terry Foster. And I'm sitting here with uh, Vice President uh, Chris Hart from the Twelfth Valley Fire. I think this is the first time in our history of having a multi-union, multi-fire union podcast, so pretty excited about that. Yeah. Um, so this sort of came about, I think mostly sort of between Isaac and Chris uh, recently, they just got back from Washington, D.C., from what we call LegCon, the Legislative Conference. And like this last podcast, I'm sort of walking into this not with a lot of information, which is great. I'll sort of punt to you guys. But uh, LegCon is a very important conference. It happens every year. Why don't I just go to Chris, I guess. You can tell a little bit about what you th- your thoughts and why you wanted to talk to the memberships about about this conference. Is that a good place to start for yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it was just kind of one of those things that popped in my head as we were flying back. I think I hit you up maybe the next day, even, yeah. right? Uh, I guess when I was on the executive board, I, it was always one of those conferences that I always kind of questioned, like, why are we sending so many people to this? What's you know? And so I didn't really have the, an idea of mm-hmm. what it was going to be like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it's probably the most important conference that we go to. There's a lot of conferences that are more educational based. Mm-hmm. So one has an educational piece to it the first day, just kind of gives educated on the topics. Mm-hmm. But this is more of a work work conference. This is going to the Washington D.C. meeting with our elected officials mm-hmm. and really impressing upon them what the importance are of the national level issues. So when you say you're elected officials, what level officials are you getting uh, getting the ears of? Congress. So we speak to senators and, and elected uh, congressmen and congresswomen and House of Rep- the yeah. House of Representatives. Um, yeah, so we, we meet with all of them that will meet with us. This was kind of a uh, uh, late-breaking information none of us really knew. Uh, but yeah, just a couple of days before traveling out there, we learned that the sitting president of the United States was going to speak at this. And that has never happened in the history of the IAFF. I mean, the legislative conference itself has only been in place for maybe 25 to 30 years. I can't remember the exact mm-hmm. uh, beginning date. Um, but the a notion of a sitting president speaking at a firefighters conference, the legislative conference specifically, that's never happened right. in history. And so that was a pretty big, uh, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, that was, I would say this, it was, you think like, oh, whatever, politics, you know, because you hear all you know about the president of the United States for the most part is what you see on TV, you know, sure. or the radio. You just get your interaction from whatever news cycle whatever. you get. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of political and it's, uh, people feel this way about this way, that way. But I'm telling you right now, when you're in the same room as the president of the United States, doesn't matter what party that person is from, it is impressively, it just overwhelms you that you, it's almost like you can't even believe it's really happening. Mm-hmm. I, I would just say that's how I felt. I was just. I agree. I don't care what party you're from. It is the machine that moves it's, with the president, that motorcade, the Secret Service, just the the the, the music when they played that "Hail to the Chief" when he came oh, walking in the room. I was just like, "Oh man!" You know? Yeah, it's, it speaks volumes to the amount of clout the firefighters have. When, it does. When the president of the United States, right. and some people might consider the leader of the free world, is what I like to say, <laughs> but it's. Uh, yeah, it was overwhelming. I mean, it was kind of, you know, they bring in the presidential seal and put it on the podium. Um, there's Secret Service guys with uh, necks as big as my waist. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know me, it's not small. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it's impressive to see these people work. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah, overwhelming. I That's think cool. one of the most amazing things he said was in, in the town he was from, 
there was there was three political parties: the Republicans, the Democrats, and the firefighters. And he really <laughs> meant that because yeah. because we our issues are specific to firefighters, and we're very when we decide to come out for someone, it's pretty strong. And we were the first to come out for him. Awesome, thanks, guys. Have a great night. All right, bye. This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra. We are on the brink of something. It really matters what we do in the next few months. We are, in my opinion, just one crisis away from very radical change. It might be good change. It might be bad change. Limited democracy characterizes our American political system and it cannot endure another of its inherent crises. Change is coming. It will bring either furtherance of democracy, more democracy, or radical curtailment of democracy. You can see this going on right now in different states of the Union. Just for explanatory purposes, let's look at another period in history in which democracy was on the chopping block. Examine the Western world just prior to the great crisis of October 1929. Coming out of that, the people running things chose their way out of the Great Depression. Some of them, by radically increasing their democracy under Franklin Delano Roosevelt as chief executive. Others chose to curtail democracy under Adolf Hitler. This is present, not future. It's going on now. Just for example, on just on some things. In Washington state, everybody can vote by mail. In Texas, the right to vote is being whittled away. In some parts of the United States, abortion rights are enshrined in their constitution. In others, women have no rights at all. The next crisis may cause us to jump one way or the other. Now, what do I mean by a crisis? There's a bunch of them standing by. For example, this summer, we expect to see a Supreme Court decision in which the Supreme Court may very well decide that any union that goes on strike will have to pay damages to any company that suffers any loss to their profits because of the strike. In other words, the right to strike would be taken away from us, and that may happen in this Supreme Court in June of this year, just a couple of months away. That's a crisis. The leadership that is offered politically has hardly any credibility. Fewer than 50% of the voting age population turns out even in the most highly publicized elections. 30% of the voting age population does not even register to vote. Choose your crisis. All of them are at hand. Our choice has to be more democracy, not less. Our choice is peace, clean air and water, pro-worker economic policies, 
and leadership we can believe in. The alternatives are unthinkable. I say these kinds of things on the Workers' Beat radio talk show every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra. Hi, everyone. This is Vina. We're closing out Women's History Month with The Calling. Very few midwives today are black, despite a long tradition of midwifery in the black community. And in this episode, we share the story of Kim Durden, who found her calling in reclaiming midwifery and birth work. Thanks for listening. From the UCLA Labor Center, we bring you Rework. I'm Saba Wahid. And I'm Vina Humpapur. I really do feel that I'm led and I'm guided, and I just follow that and that it's kind of gotten me here. But the most beautiful thing that I love so much is really learning more and more about the history of Black midwives in this country, how powerful we were, and learning why our profession got wiped out. And not only just the learning about it, but really feeling into it as if we're all getting messages out here to reclaim this. Kim sees her experience coming into this world as shaping her path into birth work. I was born in 1965 in the era of twilight sleep. It was kind of touted as this amazing wonder drug. Actually made the mom have amnesia more so than pain relief. The mom still felt pain in childbirth, but they wouldn't remember the experience. And I'll talk to my mom about my birth because she said she loved it. She was like, well, actually, I don't remember. That always puzzled me. Even as a young kid, I was like, how can you not remember? After Kim joined this La Leche League group, she began to realize there was this whole world of birth workers. There were lactation consultants who helped moms with breastfeeding, and then there were also doulas who helped moms during childbirth and also afterwards. So I just got into this whole other world, and, and eventually I started working as a postpartum doula. It was a really wonderful mommy job because I could go around my kids' schedule and my partner's work schedule and things like that. And it was pretty good money and it was fun. So that is how I started learning how to like integrate kids and my family life into this work. But also I learned about the work through my kids. I always say that my kids brought me to this work because without them, I don't see myself going into working with families as I do now. We have a tendency to think of the private sphere, our, our home, our personal life, and then you have work, which is outside in your public self. And in Kim's story, you see so much overlap between those two realms that are thought of as separate. You know, when you look in another mother's eyes, deep in her eyes, there's that connection because you get it. You're literally living on another planet. And when someone can be with you that's also on that planet, we would just be vibing off of each other and moms would feel good and I would feel good. It was 1998 and New York had just gotten way too expensive to live in. So Kim and her family moved to Virginia and there they were able to take care of her husband's sick father. And then I started working at Howard University Hospital and helped create the first lactation clinic. I worked there for many years and, you know, L.A. just started calling me. <laughs> we moved out. I started working for Watts Healthcare 
And I also worked for a birth center, all the sanctuary as a director of lactation and did childbirth education. And then eventually I enrolled in school for midwifery. So when Kim decided to go back to school to become a midwife, she became a part of this much longer history we have in the United States of Black midwives. So there's a lot of ancestral remembrance happening. And I think our ancestors are making us look and pay attention to what's come before us. And what I found out is that there is this huge history of Black midwifery in the United States that nobody knows about. In the early 1900s, this whole midwifery thing came at me from a lot of different angles. I mean, it's literally and figuratively a calling. When they call in, you got to be ready to go. And it's beautiful, but it's not glamorous. You're going to have blood on you sometimes. You're going to see some body processes that a lot of people would think are gross. You may not sleep much. You may worry about the people you're taking care of or their babies. As a midwife, we practice in a holistic manner. So we're not just saying, wow, you know, it really sucks that her blood pressure is high. We're also thinking about like, why is her blood pressure high? Is she exercising? Is she eating well? Does she have access to good food? Does she have a place to live? We love to really take care of the whole person. And so by default, we also end up taking care of the community. I'm not trying to loan anybody any money, but resources, I'll say resources, definitely. And it's that holding space also for not just the great outcomes, but what about when stuff goes in a different direction? So we have to hold space for the happy and also the sad and the disappointing, all those things. It really is a calling. So Kim found her journey. She found her calling. Or maybe you could say it found her. Or maybe it was something that was just within her all along. And that is it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show. <laughs> <laughs>